good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. It's it's great to have you here with us, my friends. This is Stuart Haynes, and welcome to the iFormRx podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. Our mission at iFormRx, with the help of lots of volunteers who give their time, talent, and money, is to create an online community of practice where people engage in ongoing professional development. Ultimately, our goal is to provide the best possible care to patients and using evidence to inform our decisions and recommendations. So if you haven't already officially joined iFormerX, I encourage you to head over to iFormerX.org and sign up today. It's free to all health professionals and students studying to become a health professional. So our guests today are Dr. Austin Morgan and Dr. Elizabeth Baumeister, who reached out to me a few months ago and suggested we should review this paper that had just been published in February 2022 in the journal Circulation. The article is entitled Regular Acetaminophen Use and Blood Pressure in People with Hypertension, the PATH BP Study. Now, based on the title of the paper, I was thinking to myself, how could this study possibly be practice changing? Uh, We all know that acetaminophen is safer than NSAIDs for patients with chronic pain. And unlike NSAIDs, acetaminophen doesn't have an impact on cardiovascular risk. And indeed, I've preferentially recommended acetaminophen for many years with the belief that it did not have an impact on blood pressure. But alas, this study calls into question that assumption. And clearly, If acetaminophen does adversely impact blood pressure control, it would have a significant implication in practice. Dr. Morgan is lead clinical pharmacist in charge of training and development for the pharmacists at TRIA Health in Overland Park, Kansas. And Dr. Baumeister is currently, at the time of this recording at least, a PGY1 pharmacy practice resident at TRIA Health, but she'll be staying on as a clinical pharmacist at TRIA Health at the conclusion of a residency. And if you don't know that much about TRIA Health, I encourage you to check out their website because they're doing some really cool stuff, providing personalized, comprehensive, and whole person care with pharmacists front and center. So Austin and Lizzie, it's great to have you both here. Yeah, thanks, Stuart. We're happy to be here. Thanks, Stuart. Yeah, it's great to be here. I appreciate the invitation. So Lizzie, I'd like to start with you. Before we talk about the study that you reviewed in your commentary, I'd I'd like to start our discussion out by setting some context. Most of us uh, were taught in pharmacy school, at least I was, and I suspect in medical and nursing schools as well, that patients with hypertension should avoid NSAIDs and chronic NSAID use can have a negative effect on renal blood flow and the regulation of sodium and other electrolytes. And all of this leads to increases in blood pressure and some significant increases in some patients. But how large of effect is this and how variable of effect is this? In other words, perhaps NSAID usage has little or no impact on blood pressure in most patients, but increases in blood pressure modestly in some and perhaps very significantly in others? Yeah, so this is a great question and definitely something that we who are taught in school as well is to have patients who have hypertension or have had a history of cardiovascular events to avoid NSAIDs. 
There's been several studies assessing the potential impact of blood pressure with a variety of NSAIDs, and I've really concluded that different NSAIDs have varying effects on blood pressure. Take, for example, the Precision ABPM, or the Precision Ambulatory Blood Pressure Monitoring Study. This was a prospective cardiovascular safety trial comparing the effects of celecoxib or Celebrex, ibuprofen, and naproxen with matching placebos. This happened for four months, and it was in patients who had either osteoarthritis or rheumatoid arthritis and evidence of or increased risk for cardiovascular disease. So this study found that celecoxib had no effect on change in systolic blood pressure, and then naproxen had a slight increase in systolic blood pressure at about a 1.6 millimeter of mercury change, and then ibuprofen had the highest increase in systolic blood pressure at about a 3.7 millimeter of mercury increase. Additionally, a systematic review of 32 trials published in 2007 found that ibuprofen was associated with a positive 3.54 or about 4 millimeters of mercury systolic increase, while naproxen and nebumatone showed slight but non-statistically significant increases in systolic blood pressure. All in all, there seems to be quite a variable effect of NSAIDs on blood pressure, really depending on the study that you look at, and it's you know very patient-specific. So, Austin, let's talk about the PATH-BP study. The study was published, as I said, in circulation in February 2022, and, and we provide a link to that paper on our website. So I encourage everyone to read the paper, but can you give us a brief summary of the study methods and its results? So like you said, PATH-BP was published in early 2022. It was a double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized crossover study. It was funded by the British Heart Foundation, and it included participants who were adults from ambulatory clinics with hypertension. They could either be treated on a stable dose of antihypertensive medication with a blood pressure less than 150 over 95, or they could be untreated with a blood pressure between 135 and 150 over 85 to 95 millimeters of mercury. Their primary outcome in the trial was a change in mean daytime ambulatory systolic blood pressure after two weeks of treatment with acetaminophen versus placebo. So the study did include 110 participants, and they were randomized to one of two study arms. The first was the acetaminophen group, which involved patients taking one gram of acetaminophen by mouth four times a day for two weeks. Matching placebo was provided for the other group and followed the same dosing interval. After two weeks, a two-week washout occurred, and then participants crossed over to the other arm for two more weeks. Study outcomes included change in a variety of blood pressure measures, including ambulatory blood pressure monitoring results on day 1 and 14, standard clinic monitored blood pressure on day 1 and 14, as well as at two short visits on days 3 and 7, and then laboratory analysis including urea, electrolytes, liver function tests, and serum acetaminophen concentrations for their per-protocol analysis. Regarding the outcomes, they were quite consistent and statistically significant across the board. So for acetaminophen-treated patients, significant increases were seen in the modified intent-to-treat analysis for all blood pressure outcomes that were previously mentioned, including the primary outcome of daytime ambulatory systolic blood pressure with an increase of 4.7 millimeters of mercury. Lab values didn't differ between the groups, and of note, there were two serious adverse events that happened. One episode of AFib requiring a hospital admission uh, did occur, but it was not deemed to be related to the trial medication. And there was one heart attack, but that happened before any medication was dosed. 
And then lastly, there was one participant who was withdrawn from the study due to a clinic blood pressure over 180 over 110 on repeat readings on day 14 of acetaminophen treatment. And then their blood pressure actually did normalize once they stopped acetaminophen. Yeah, so there are lots of things that I really like about this study, Lizzie, because they, they used a crossover design where each participant served as his or her own control. And I, and I think that provides some pretty compelling evidence that daily acetaminophen use does indeed increase blood pressure. In fact, the one patient who had a really significant increase in blood pressure, which normalized after discontinuation, is really quite astounding. But I'm wondering what you think are the key strengths and weaknesses of this study. Yeah. So as you mentioned, one of the strengths of this study was the crossover design and the implementation of a washout period. So this type of design implemented into the trial really allowed the authors to properly assess the effects of acetaminophen over placebo. Additionally, they used a gold standard blood pressure measurement with the 24-hour ambulatory monitor. They fitted this on four separate occasions, and then they also had clinic measurements in addition to that. Lastly, patients included in the study were those with treated and untreated hypertension. And in a post-hoc analysis, they were able to show no differences in the degree of change between groups. In terms of study weaknesses, this was performed in a relatively small cohort, so there was only 110 patients. Most of them were white male patients, thus we can't really generalize the results of the PASPP study to other ethnic or racial groups. Additionally, patients enrolled into this study did not have any chronic pain syndromes, which makes it really difficult to assess the true effect in an important patient population, as pain, of course, has an impact on blood pressure status. In terms of the variability of effect, increases in blood pressure were seen in both the treated and untreated hypertensive groups. However, this study didn't really break down if most patients experienced an increase in systolic blood pressure or if it was just a handful of patients who had very large increases. To that end, as Austin and you pointed out, one patient was excluded from the study at the end of their acetaminophen period because their blood pressure had exceeded 180 over 110. This did resolve after medication discontinuation, but it does show that some patients do have some pretty high increases in their blood pressure with you know, daily use of acetaminophen. So Austin and Lizzie, what are the practical implications of this study? Uh, do you think a four to five millimeter increase in blood pressure is clinically meaningful? And should we shy away from recommending acetaminophen and simply tell patients to use whatever works best for them in terms of pain control? Has this data changed your practice in any way? Those are some really good questions. And I think the study does provide a few practical implications for pharmacists, uh, both in an ambulatory care and the community-based setting. I think the results provide pretty clear evidence that there's a good likelihood that blood pressure will increase if someone requires higher dose acetaminophen, like what was used in PATH-BP on a regular basis. With that in mind, pharmacists should be counseling patients at risk of complications from elevated blood pressure and that acetaminophen may increase their blood pressure. And I think we should be educating prescribers of these study results as well, as they do run counter to routine practice recommendations, like you mentioned at the start, and an established knowledge base of acetaminophen safety. From a safety perspective, I think patients should be counseled to monitor their blood pressure more often and be reminded of proper blood pressure monitoring technique, as this was a key aspect of the trial to ensure accurate results. We should also advise on when to be concerned and what to do. 
for example, if someone's been controlled by their blood pressure management plan, they should know that a blood pressure consistently above 130 to 140 over 80 to 90 is no longer at goal and that something should probably be changed. And additionally, there was the one patient who did experience hypertensive urgency over 180 over 110 while using acetaminophen. So patients should be aware of that threshold and be advised to stop acetaminophen and contact their provider if something like that was to happen. So I do think that well-trained home monitoring with a defined action plan is likely adequate for monitoring for most patients rather than requiring them to go into clinic for monitoring as home blood pressure monitoring is associated with perhaps a more accurate correlation to true blood pressure on an ambulatory monitoring basis than clinic monitoring alone. And then lastly, for my opinion, I, I do think that alternative treatment strategies, including things like topical diclofenac for localized joint pain, prescription options for specific pain syndromes like neuropathy, migraines, or fibromyalgia could be safer for patients who are at risk of elevated blood pressure as acetaminophen or NSAIDs might cause. And perhaps the best option for the highest risk patients might be non-pharmacologic options such as exercise, Tai Chi, physical therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, or any of the other evidence-based strategies that are out there that don't require medication, as these are quite unlikely to worsen other disease states as well. And as Austin said, the past PP trial really does provide clear evidence of blood pressure increases with consistent daily acetaminophen use. However, we're really still lacking high quality data to show that acetaminophen does in fact increase cardiovascular risk. There are some trials but they've shown either inconclusive results or no increase in this cardiovascular risk. However, we do have data available that does show that NSAID use increases risk of cardiovascular events. However, despite the lack of data with acetaminophen, we do know that uncontrolled hypertension alone is one of the largest driving factors for cardiovascular events. And the increase of around the five millimeter systolic seen for these patients in the path PP trial can equate to a higher risk of events, upwards of around 20%. So the changes seen here are quite significant, especially if this increase was to be sustained over time. In terms of if we should no longer preferentially recommend acetaminophen or NSAIDs to patients with, for example, osteoarthritis, I don't really think that we're at a point yet in terms of a hard no for either of those medications or the classes of medications. There are risks associated with NSAIDs and with acetaminophen, and I think these risks need to be discussed with our patients, and we need to let them have an opinion on which path they would like to go down. There is data out there to show that there are NSAIDs that potentially have lower cardiovascular risks than others, and that the cardiovascular risk with acetaminophen alone is really yet to be determined. So overall, I think we just need to get some more information from the acetaminophen standpoint, and we need to be educating our patients on the potential complications while really managing other drivers of cardiovascular risk, such as tobacco cessation and other lifestyle modifications. In terms of considering like adding or adjusting blood pressure or pain medications, I think this is a very patient-specific decision and depends on the degree to which their pain is controlled with acetaminophen and how much their blood pressure is really increased on treatment. For example, if we have a patient on daily treatment of acetaminophen, who reports adequate pain control but increased blood pressure and they want to stay on the acetaminophen treatment, then I think it's reasonable to start or adjust any blood pressure medications as long as the patient is willing. On the other hand, if the patient is 
you know, uncontrolled in terms of their pain syndromes and they're seeking alternative options than perhaps stopping acetaminophen to see if their blood pressure improves and changing their pain regimen to a more targeted therapy is, of course, completely reasonable as well. Of course, if the patient is reaching hypertensive urgency or emergency, like was seen in one patient in this past BP study, we should discontinue acetaminophen, treat their blood pressure increase appropriately, and then change their pain regimen to something less likely to cause blood pressure issues. Well, Lizzie, Austin, it was great to have you both here on the iFormerX podcast today, and I, and I want to thank you for walking us through this study and its practical implications. This study has certainly got me to rethink what I recommend and the importance of monitoring and follow-up, but I'm wondering what our audience thinks. Um, what are the implications of this study? What should we be doing differently? Be sure to leave a comment by visiting and logging into the iFormerX website. And if you are a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist like Dr. Morgan and myself, you can earn board recertification and continuing education credit by listening to this podcast and reading the written commentary. We've partnered with the American Pharmacists Association to produce their evidence-based practice literature evaluation series. The uh, literature evaluation series is available online, on demand, anytime, anywhere through APHA. You can learn more about the APHA board prep and recertification program by clicking on the link posted below the written commentary. And lastly, I want to give a big shout out to the University of Kansas and the University of Missouri, Kansas City, who both seem to be producing a lot of really great ambulatory care and community pharmacy practitioners like Drs. Morgan and Baumeister. And pharmacists like Emily Prohaska, who has been a member of our editorial board, and the many iFormerX contributors, authors, and reviewers from Lawrence, Kansas, and the metro Kansas City area, you're doing some amazing work in the heartland of America. So keep up the good work, and thanks for being active members of iFormerX. Until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off. Be safe, my friends. Mm-hmm.